0: When we read those verses, there are many things I love about my wife, but one indispensable aspect of her personality is her willingness to say hard things to me. Now, in the moment, and there's been many, I oftentimes struggle to hear truthful words or warnings from her regarding whatever it, it might be. But I've I don't think I've I can't bring anything to mind as i was thinking about this i couldn't come up with anything that i look back and i'm like i'm just resentful that she shared that with me and i've received this willingness to disagree with me he's not just going to cater to whatever i'm saying but there's there's another aspect to all of this these words of truth that i receive from people typically come to me, at least from these people, they come to me in gracious forms. So they're not swinging a two-by-four at me. They're not sharing hard realities with me in a way that devalues me or is mocking me in any way. They're loving me. They're loving me. They're hard words, but they're loving me. So the reality is, I could be dismissive of Casey and Michael and others, and I have been, to my detriment. But I have also listened. But that's not even sufficient enough. Just listening is not sufficient enough. Hebrews gives repeated calls to hear, to listen, and then to obey. Listening isn't enough if there's no follow-through. We tell our kids often, listen and obey right away listen and obey right away okay there is a word used in hebrews for obey that is not its own word it's actually an intensive an, an intensified form of another word used in hebrews which is to hear so you you have a word for to hear and the intensified form of that is obey And so they're so closely connected. We can just listen to something, but if it's just in one ear and out the other, what good is that? There's this strong connection that when we hear, we don't listen just for listening's sake. We listen so that it can translate into obedience. And so we've heard in Hebrews continuously this idea that God is a speaking God. He has important words to say to us, And then it's not just God's a speaking God, but we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, or we will drift away. We, we've heard, do not harden your hearts as Israel hardened their hearts, but listen, listen closely. And so that's my plea this morning, that we would listen closely to what God has for us. So we're going to pick this up, Hebrews chapter 5 we are going to start reading in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. God, thanks for these moments that we have to listen to the writer of Hebrews and ultimately to listen to you. I pray that would happen in these moments where we need to be convicted of sin, where we need to be chastened. Would you do that? Would you cause... Allow our hearts to be soft and tender towards your truth. Would you help us be humble in these moments? Would you help the gospel to go down deeper into our hearts so that we would see its beauty, we'd be captivated by who Jesus is and what he has done, and we would live lives of faith. In your great name I pray, amen. So verse 11 begins about this, about this. So we should identify what it is this is referring to. This, is, this refers to three topics that the author is going to further expound on beginning in chapter 7. Uh, and these were mentioned in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they are Jesus' perfection and how that qualifies him to be high priest. Secondly, his accomplishment of eternal salvation for those who obey and trust him. And third, Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So those are the things that the author wants to get to. It says that the author has much to say about these various topics, but he's going to take an interlude here. He's going to stop, and he's going to rebuke his readers. So, uh, we've got a few, a couple a couple children in here today so if if you're a child you have likely been corrected or disciplined recently and it can seem at times like kids are the only ones who get this treatment but if we're honest and if you ask your kids every kid sees through their parents and they know their parents need to be corrected need to be disciplined as well so, kids, this is your chance to get a ringside seat for your parents to be corrected, to be rebuked. So, you can ask them later today if they felt disciplined, and if so, in what ways. So, verses 11 through 14, these are sharp words for the listener. To gloss over these words would be to prove the author's point. He says, it is hard to explain, but, but he's not saying it's hard to, to explain because it's a complicated subject matter. He's saying it's hard to explain because his audience is dull of hearing. They're not good at listening. These people who are likely Christians in Rome are lazy and sluggish as it pertains to listening to what really matters. They are slow to listen. My wife was recently uh, recounting a conversation with me uh, that she had had with our children. And there's been some anger issues in the Ocel household recently. And so we've been talking about the, the picture that she was painting for the kids is that we are to be slow to anger, which comes from the book of James. But the picture was slow to anger like a turtle. So that's how we are to move towards anger is like A turtle moves Generally speaking, so this visual can be helpful But oftentimes it's rarely heated by kids or, or by us as adults as well We we so often tend to move at the pace of a turtle as it relates to believing as it relates to obeying the gospel the reality is I I oftentimes have gotten frustrated with my kids because I've told them to do something and they don't do it. And I have to tell them two, three, four, five times. There's usually discipline in in the midst of that as well. But the reality is, I get so frustrated with them, but that's what I do as well. I do that repeatedly in a spiritual reality. God says, do this. And I do the opposite. I am slow to listen. I am slow to obey. And I think my wife would affirm this. Like, How many times has she ask me to do a certain thing? And she, sit, she, she was asking me in year one of marriage, and she's still asking me in year 17 of marriage to do some of these things. I am, I am slow to listen and obey. And the author's focus is on the fact that his reader's slowness in listening and obeying has resulted in spiritual immaturity. These are immature people. At this point, these people should be teachers. They should be instructing other people as it pertains to the gospel, the things of God. But they are, by and large, unable to do this. They still need to be taught. They still need to hear the foundational realities of the gospel. They're not understanding them in the way that they should. They need to lay back in mommy's arms and to be fed a diet that requires basically no work on their part, spiritually speaking. Now in this, we shouldn't hear that milk is bad. Milk isn't bad. Milk is essential. And we have non-christians here at center church we have people who are new christians here at center church and it is necessary for you to consume what it says the basic principles of god it's necessary to review those to understand those and i would say it is good for those of us who view ourselves as mature christians to go back and to be reminded to not just assume those realities but to be, be reminding ourselves of them and as a christian moves along in life they should be growing in their faith there should be mature steps of maturity that are being taken they should be we should be consuming a spiritual diet that requires some preparation and some work to chew believing the gospel requires sacrifice going to require study it's going to require selflessness believing the gospel will require discipline so christians should be pursuing maturity always but but what is maturity what is the spiritual maturity being talked of here we get some help in verse 14 mature people are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil okay so i I think what this is talking about is the gray areas okay so what it's not talking about is do not murder all right i i think do not murder is pretty straightforward if i brought my four-year-old up here i think she could tell you after i told her do not murder i think she could tell you what is good and what is evil as it pertains to that command So I I don't think that's exactly what the author is talking about here. It would include that, but it's not limited to that. So this is getting at gray areas. Maturity is to be so well-trained in believing the gospel, knowing the mechanics of the gospel, and allowing the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives that we can distinguish good from evil increasingly that we can distinguish good from evil in those areas of life that the Bible it does not explicitly have a comment on. The Bible has little or nothing to say about many things in life, many things that we encounter on a daily basis. What we look at on our screens, how we spend our time, what and how much we eat and drink, how we spend money, what fills our calendar, None of those things are explicitly stated in the Bible. We need to grow in maturity to know what that should look like for a Christian. So an alcoholic can say, it's wrong for me to drink alcohol. And I think that would be a mature statement for an alcoholic to state. state. But for myself, it would be immature for me to say it's wrong for everyone to drink alcohol. Because there's no blanket statement for that in the Bible. In fact, I'd have to answer Jesus, the one who turned water into wine. Every circumstance that we encounter presents us with a myriad of scenarios. And maturity results from continual practice of letting the gospel shape us, of letting... Uh, of letting the gospel inform how we engage with all of those situations. So, So the gospel is not just this thing out there that we intellectually believe. The gospel is intended to inform and shape all of life, all of it. The way that we drive on the highway, how we work each day, the tone of our voice in all situations, Another example would be mission. So one of our core values here at Center Church is mission. So basically when I, when I say mission, what I mean is telling others, and especially non-Christians, about who Jesus is and how he has impacted us. Sharing with people who do not know about Jesus what Jesus means to us. How he has saved us from ourselves. Now, when we think about this, for for many of us, this can be a terrifying thought. When we think about maturity, this might be one of those times we want to claim immaturity, right? Like, ah, that's for the mature people to do that. But the Bible is really clear. Jesus says, go and make disciples. That is the Christian life. Go and make disciples. The Christian life includes this corporate gathering the Christian life is going and making disciples. So there's a time in those conversations. There's a time for us to listen. And there's a time for us to speak. There's a time for us to press hard on people and to probe into what's really going on in their hearts. There's times for us to use differing tones in those conversations with non-christians that there's times for us to use humor and to be really serious and and all of those dynamics we don't get that laid out in the bible that comes as we mature maturity comes from practice from putting ourselves out there from wrestling with these realities maturity comes from failure. And many of us don't even want to engage in mission because we're scared of failure, right? But, But that's how we mature. That's how a kid learns to walk. They fall down, and they get back up, and they build those muscles. The same goes for mission. We engage in mission, and we will fail. We will say the wrong thing. We will have to apologize. We will not have an answer. And that is okay. That is how we learn to live on mission. So the author very explicitly is calling his readers, and that that includes us now today, to mature, to grow up into maturity. It's not okay for us just to settle for immaturity or to assume that we are mature. We we should always be in this process of seeking to grow in maturity. Okay, I want to make a quick comment here on verse 13. Uh, As it pertains to the phrase the word of righteousness the word of righteousness So this phrase in the first century this phrase was associated and I would say specifically to these readers This phrase was associated with martyrdom So the idea that someone would die for their faith All right, so the word of righteousness is a word Okay, so it's a word to be listened to and to believe, but then it's also a word that should be proclaimed. All right? So persecution had begun for Christians in Rome, most likely at this time, but it was going to get much worse for them. All right? But the reality is there's something there already that these people are... Dealing with. And the author is saying, these Christians were dull of hearing and they struggled to discern between good and evil. They struggled to be able to proclaim the word of righteousness in the right way and at the right time to those who needed to hear it. So they're in a time when persecution has not become full-blown under Nero, when he he is just going to bulldoze Christians. He's gonna run roughshod over Christians. And so the author is saying, as it pertains to the word of righteousness, if you don't know in your everyday lives right now how to be able to discern and distinguish between good and evil, when and how to proclaim the word of righteousness, how will you fare any better when you're facing an execution committee? Because that's what's coming. That's what's coming for us. And so he's pleading with them that they would prepare themselves now that they would grow into maturity now before that day comes so these these are adults who know how to swim but when they go to the pool they swim in a foot and a half of water they never get out of the kitty end of the pool it's infantile and for those of them and us that do that spiritually speaking what we do is we justify ourselves. We justify the fact that we're in the kitty end of the pool by looking at the people who aren't even in the water, right? We'll we'll always be able to find somebody who we see as lesser than ourselves as it pertains to maturity, And, and that can be an excuse for us. Well, I don't need to dig deep in that regard because I'm mature as it relates to this person. But the reality is that will break down. That idea is going to break down if we're going to compare ourselves to others. Because the Bible's really clear. If you see someone who's less mature than you are, you're not called to compare yourselves to them, but to go to them and to help bring maturity where you see it isn't. It's part of the going and making disciples. So the human tendency, I would say aside from my comment on mission earlier, okay, the human tendency is we can oftentimes, we tend to see ourselves as mature. I like think oftentimes we'll, we'll tend to look at the person below us and the person above us. And some of this is driven by personality type for sure. But I would say that the church in many respects hasn't helped with this either The fact that we assume maturity on our behalf. So David and Goliath, I think, is a good way to illustrate this, the story of David and Goliath. So we have an army, Israel's army, doesn't want to go and fight Goliath, this giant, because they're scared to go and fight him. So this little boy, David, he's going to come and defeat Goliath. Okay? He comes, he slays the giant. And the way that we oftentimes teach that or preach that is is we say. Go get your five stones, go get your slingshot, and be David. Go slay your giants, and and in that there's this assumption of maturity. That is something we can do. We're capable of doing that. We're not David in that story. That's Jesus in that story. We're the army that's cowering on the sidelines who won't go fight the battle we need Jesus to come and to fight that battle for us maturity occurs as a response to what God has done seeing what he's doing right now we respond to that and in responding to that not taking it on ourselves to go slay our giants to prove our maturity to be able to just admit we're immature in that there's this reality, we are free from the damning pressure of trying to be Jesus. Because that's impossible. No one really wants to try and be Jesus. And that's what the gospel does. It frees us from trying to be Jesus. He's the mature one. We are the immature one. So we look to him as the mature one. We let him shape us and form us. We respond to who he is, and what he has done for us. We listen to him. We don't go fight the battle, we listen. See how passive it is for us? We listen and we trust. And he goes and fights the battle for us. So these first four verses that we get here at the end of chapter 5, they're this really sharp rebuke. But they're loving. It's a love that bites. But the next three verses are an exhortation. And I love how the author he just comes from this rebuke, and yet we still hear now, hear from him, optimism. He's still optimistic. Even in the face of the immaturity that he knows is occurring, despite his reader's persistent failure, the author has hope. And once we get down to verse 3 of chapter 6, we see that his hope is in God, not in man. So the hope is in God, but, but he has hope. So it's almost like as he's reading, writing this sermon, he gets through verse 14 and he lets his listeners feel the weight. We failed, we're immature. And he pauses there so that he can sit there. But then he enters into this exhortation. But that's not the end of the story. There's more. That's not where we need to persist in hopelessness, in our immaturity. Verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now this isn't stating that all doctrine about Jesus is elementary. Okay, We've already mentioned we need milk. Okay, Milk is necessary. There's also this re- reality that the whole book of Hebrews is essentially a doctrine of Jesus. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is. A doctrine of Jesus. And we're in a section that is focused on Jesus' great salvation. So, so it's not as though we just throw everything out. But it is a call to graduate from elementary school and move on to maturity. And then the author is going to go on to state in three couplets the foundational aspects he has in mind, those things that need to be moved on from, beginning with repentance and faith. Now, this next section, this especially verse 2, uh, verse 1 or 2, these are historically tricky verses to handle because it almost seems as though they're contradicting other parts of the Bible. And and you could even say contradicting parts of Hebrews as well. So what the author is doing here, he's not diminishing repentance and faith as he starts off mentioning those two realities. So repentance is turning away from, so turning away from sin the author isn't minimizing that he's he's not saying don't confess your sins that's not what's being communicated here james 5 16 it says confess your sins to each other so so we never want to build theology on one verse okay we always want to read it in light of the the broader context of the bible so we know repentance is necessary for all christians not one time in an ongoing manner. Confessing of sins is necessary in an ongoing manner. If we think about the the broader context of Hebrews, Hebrews is moving people, or the author is seeking to move people away from the Old Covenant. He's trying to move people away from all of the rituals that were part of the Old Testament law. And I think what we find in him exhorting these people is that the struggle is real it's hard to move on from keeping the law it it seems so easy here's 10 rules if i keep them god's happy with me he's saying we're moving on from that but the old way for his readers the old way was comfortable it was very manageable at least in their minds it was very manageable for them and so i think part of what's going on here is that his audience what they were doing is they were making repentance and faith the new law they were saying okay if i'm supposed to repent this is what god expects from me this is now how i please god i just need to keep repenting so repentance had become the new rule or the new way to garner god's approval i think a modern way in which we can see this happening and i've heard this from a number of you as well you've grown up in churches where this was taught is the idea that we must confess every sin we ever commit to god or we will go to hell if if you don't remember and identify and confess every single sin you have committed you are going to go to hell that's impossible That is impossible. And I think to even think we are capable of identifying every sin in our hearts and confessing it, that's sin itself, because it's arrogance. Sin is so deeply embedded in us. We sin all the time without realizing it. Now, there are many ways in which God's Spirit's going to come, He's going to convict us, He's going to mature us, He's going to grow us in that but this points to how great jesus grace is what he actually accomplished on the cross there are things we have no clue about that we have never confessed and he will forgive us for those sins so we need to mature as it pertains to repentance And we need to mature as it pertains to faith. So the author of Hebrews for sure is not minimizing faith. Okay, if you go to chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we'll get there in a number of months, that whole chapter is about faith. It's about what faith produces. Faith is essential to be a Christian. If you go to John chapter 6, there's some disciples, some followers of Jesus who come to Jesus And they ask him, Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus' response to them was this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The works of God that he calls us to is to believe the gospel. To believe in who Jesus is. And what he has done. So there's no minimizing the reality of faith. Many of you, you, especially if you grew up in the church and, and more likely in an evangelical context, you've heard the phrase, ask Jesus into your heart to be saved. I think an elementary expression of this is to believe that we need to keep repeating it. That every time we hear the invitation, we've got to ask Jesus into our heart just to make sure. In doing that, the faith is in what we do. It's not in what Jesus has done. We put our trust in what Jesus has done for us. And so, we make an expression of faith and then he's going to grow that, he's going to Mature that. But we don't need to continually make that confession in the sense of trying to save ourselves again. I think another elementary expression of faith can be this reality like we ask Jesus into our heart and when we tell our faith story we're so focused on that moment. Our faith story is fixated on the past. I think faith is intended to mature. That was the starting point. But what does your faith mean today? How has God grown your faith? What shape has it taken or is it taking now, today? So if we just look at our faith from a historical aspect, I think that's an elementary expression of faith. That faith that had a seed planted at one day is intended to sprout and to grow into something mature, And God intends that the the expression of faith you made one day for that to grow, to grow strong, to become much more mature. So this, what we're reading in Hebrews, isn't a doing away with faith, but a deepening, a maturing of faith. This week, this is basically every day, but I thought of it this week. My eldest son comes home, and I told him I was going to share this story, and he was fine with this. So he comes home from school. I'm like, Ty, how was your day? He says, good. And I, I ask him some form of a question, why was it good? Or tell me about your day. And he, he'll think for a moment, I don't know. I don't know. And usually where it ends up is, It was good because nothing bad happened. And I have to really probe for him to share, this is the good things that happened. Maturing faith moves from asking Jesus into our hearts to a deepening of understanding the how and the why, to then sharing that faith with other people, people who don't know, don't understand who Jesus is, Or what he has done for us. Deepening faith is going to get into the why. So faith must move. It must grow. Faith is like a muscle. We need to exercise it. So that it grows. It's built up. Alright, then the author moves on to discuss instruction about washings. So back in the first century, when someone entered a house or the temple was before a meal, people would wash themselves or p- to purify themselves. And this, this was much more than just hygiene, though, though it was that. This was also a symbolic cleansing act. And religious leaders instituted this as a meaningful practice, but for many, as the years wore on, it became a mindless practice for many. An infantile faith, an elementary faith, views many aspects of faith as ritualistic. Immature faith lacks understanding of the why and the how. It's more of a thoughtless exercise to appease God. That This is what I think God wants me to do, so I'm going to do it. But there's not a lot of robust engagement with the why I do that or stirring of affections in our hearts in doing it the reality is we are in danger of committing this same error going to church giving money reading our bible praying and the list could go on and on these are all good necessary parts of a christian's life but why do we do them why do we do them and do we love doing them Or do we feel obligated to do them? Too often we do them because of obligation or because of ritual. And all of life, including these activities I just mentioned, are intended to be expressions of worship. All of life is intended to be an expression of worship, a response of faith to what Jesus has done for us. Corporate gatherings of Jesus' church like this are not intended to be mundane, ritualistic. These gatherings are intended to be life-giving. And if they're not, then we should ask ourselves, why? Why is that? Why do I come here? Why do I gather? Is it to check a box? Or is it to encounter Jesus? through his people. Generously sharing what we have is intended to stimulate joy in us. Generously sharing is not intended to be something that we do begrudgingly. It's intended to create joy for us and for those who are on the receiving end of it as well. Because we increasingly see how Jesus has shared with us. That's why we share, because Jesus has first shared with us. That's why we're generous with other people, because Jesus has been generous with us. That's why we forgive other people, because Jesus has forgiven us. So, what the author is doing here, he's pressing the gospel, the doctrines of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, deeper onto our hearts. The fact that Jesus has conquered the grave isn't just a nice theological concept to hang our hats on. Jesus' resurrection is not a convenient trump card we infrequently pull out when we need to. Jesus' defeat of sin and hell and death means that the fear that grips our hearts today is something he seeks to drive out from us. If we will trust him, the stress that we feel to impress others, to keep up with the Joneses, to be a perfect whatever it is for us, he will take that on himself. Maturing faith allows us to cast our cares on Jesus, to rest in him. Okay, Not as a concept, but as a reality. That he actually, literally, tangibly takes things upon himself he lightens our load it's not just a concept or an idea he actually does that for us so whatever we feel enslaved to jesus desires to set us free from that whatever it is he desires to set us free from it He offers us a new identity so we can cease from trying to be and do things that continually exhaust us and disappoint us. He desires that we can go to work every day, not with a, oh, here we go again, but that we can be the person in the office that's filled with joy, that we can bring others with us because we have the hope of the world in us and that the work that we do that it's not just begrudging it's not just to earn a paycheck though there's grace in that too but that we can understand that we're extending grace to other people the widget that we're making the service we're providing it's a form of grace that we can extend to other people there's much bigger realities at play here As we mature in the gospel, we can see how it affects and informs and shapes every part of life. Every part of life. Every part of life. Three points of gospel application for us this morning. We call it gospel application because it's not purely application. This is not go and do. This is Jesus has done. So it's not go and do, it's rest in Jesus. All right? So that's the gospel part of the application. We are not trying to send you out of here with a yoke on your back. We want to send you out of here with good news, in freedom, and in joy, and in hope. First point, God's desire for your maturity is evidence of his grace. God isn't merely satisfied with your salvation. He wants more for you. And part of wanting more for you is that you're going to have to hear words of rebuke. You're going to have to be disciplined. So don't begrudge these hard words. Don't begrudge God as he speaks hard words f- to you. Warnings and rebuke are not hatred. This is God's loving us if we are walking towards a cliff and we're blinded by it we want someone to chase after us and to rescue us god desires your good even in the midst of your persistent sin he still wants your good and so this call for maturity this word of rebuke this is evidence of god's grace us. Secondly, your maturity requires your, re- your proper response, but it is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on you. The gospel frees us. The gospel frees us. It is not a law that burdens us. It is a truth that frees us. Throughout Hebrews... The author is painting this picture of Jesus, a glorious picture of who he is, of what he has done. That's where everything starts, okay? It's not about us. The starting point is Jesus. And that's why we go to text in Philippians 1.5 where it says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus is the one who, who will mature us. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to respond in faith to what Jesus has done. He will mature you. Not your vain efforts. Not law-keeping. Jesus will mature us. Lastly, maturity will lead us towards more corporate expressions of faith. And conversely, away from individual expressions of faith. God saves people into his church. And God gifts people, blesses people, so that they would work for the unity of the church, so that they would work for the maturity of the church. This is Ephesians 4, where this is coming from. God equips us and gifts us for the unity and the maturity of the church. You have not been saved so you can put your feet up on the coffee table and flip channels. You have been saved so that you would pour your life out to build others up and go rescue others as well. This is the response to what Jesus has done. This is believing the gospel and letting him shape us. This is a call for a more robust view of Jesus' church. When we make decisions, we should consider the church. I've been having this conversation with a number of you here at Center Church. I don't think we have a category for the church helping us make decisions in life, but we should. We should. We tend to make decisions based on what is convenient for us, what we prefer, what would be fun. Is this good for me? Not, is this good for others? Or how might this affect my church? But we, Jesus intends to move us, not just to care for ourselves in decision-making, but to care for his church. How will my decision affect me? Yes but how will it also affect those around me, those close to me as well? And maturity will allow us to see ourselves as something bigger than us. We're saved into Jesus' church. Let's pray. God, thank you for this call for maturity. I pray,